0: If you have a Bible with you, please open it to First Timothy chapter 2. We are told now more than ever that gender roles and functions between men and women change. They are flexible. They have a bit of give in them. They're not rigidly defined. It is clear now, ever more than it has been, that this is kind of true. That gender roles do change and that they are somewhat flexible. We know this even as we've watched the laws in our country change. In the 1800s, women not only couldn't vote, but once they were married, they couldn't own property, they couldn't sign a contract, and they couldn't even earn a wage for their work. We rightly see this as a sign of progress and good progress, that all of those things are gone now. It was rare to see a woman get any sort of education not too terribly long ago. Brie's grandmother had a master's, and it was unheard of that she would have had a master's in anything at her age and given where she came from. More than that, it would be scandalous for women to have played sports. And now, not only are women who are married allowed to earn a wage, but they're allowed to earn a wage playing sports after they've graduated from university. It would have been enough to give someone in the 1890s vapors, but today we view it as a perfectly normal thing. Now men's roles too change and they've changed although they've changed less dramatically than women's it is clear that since the roles and functions of women in our society have changed these roles have a flexibility to them they're able to bend in the ever-changing and flowing culture but not all things change our culture isn't just changing and moving and flowing it is also somewhat brittle and dead and bending that branch too hard might break it right off there are some things that need to stay in place. The real question for us is what are those things? What are the things that when it comes to men and women and the differences between them are to be stayed fixed and firmed and what are those things that are able to bend and move with culture? Today we're gonna set our sights a little bit narrower than that because of the text that is before us. We're not asking what are the roles of men and women in culture at large, but specifically within the church. How are men and women different within the church? What roles are we to take on within the church? Now, this is not unconnected with what has come before. As we've been going through 1 Timothy, recall that last week we talked about how we are to pray. And we are to pray specifically so that we can live peaceful and godly lives. We talked last week about Romans twelve eighteen, or at least mentioned it in passing, where Paul says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Last week as we prayed to God about how to handle people of importance in the culture, we were praying that God handles sort of the other side of that issue. That as far as we are concerned, we will live peaceably, but we need them to live peaceably with us as well. And so we pray to God to make that happen. This week, it's sort of the other side of that. How are we to live peaceably? How are we to organize and arrange ourselves within the church that we can be peaceful and godly in all of our ways? Today, these important verses from 1 Timothy will help give us guidance on these things. If you would turn to 1 Timothy 2 and begin reading with me in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls of costly attire. This is the word of our God. Before we get into the word of our God this morning, I want to make a note about something. And because of the difficulty of this passage, there's going to be a lot of these little notes that are going to happen throughout this. So just kind of roll with me. The first note I'm going to make is about speaking in generalities. Please understand that when we speak in generalities, we don't mean that this holds in every single situation. We are dealing here with men and women, which respectively make up about half of the population each. Because of that, when we speak in generalities, there will always be instances where what we're saying is not going to be true. So for instance, if I said that men are taller than women, it doesn't invalidate the point to point at somebody and their spouse who are different in that respect, where the wife is actually taller than the husband. That doesn't invalidate my point, and I'm not looking at anyone in particular. Stop it, people. I didn't pick that out for that. You, you, on your own conscience, should bear the weight of what you just thought. So, uh, but because we're speaking in generalities, right, there's always going to be exceptions to these rules, but that doesn't mean that the generality does not hold true. So the first thing I would like to draw to your attention is Paul's command to men. And Paul's command to men is simply this. You must pray without argument. You must pray without argument. As of March in 216, Uh, 2016, the Pew Research Council did a poll on the prayer lives or the religious beliefs of Americans. And it turns out that American women are much more likely to pray than American men. 64% versus 47% said they prayed daily. And I'm going to highlight the fact that they said they prayed daily because a huge portion of those men who said they prayed daily were lying through their teeth. So it's nowhere near 64-47. The gap is well More than that. Much of this, I think, has to do with how our culture views men and what makes men, men. We view the centrality of what it means to be a man as essentially something that is self-achieving, self-motivated, and self-sufficient. He needs nothing but his own power, his own will, his own intellect to do what he wants to do. We find this all the time in stories of real men who have exactly these issues. The real men who who went out and forged the West with a hatchet, nine fingers, and a will to live, and they battled beasts and fields and weather, and they overcame all of this. Look, that's a real man. Well, as long as those are real men, as long as real men are people who are self-sufficient in and of themselves and need nothing, prayer has no bearing on a real man because we view real men as those who are carpe diem and seizing the day, because they are the people who don't need anything else. They are Paul Simon's islands. The reason why men don't pray is precisely because a man who prays is not a man who looks like he's self-sufficient. A man who prays is anything but self-sufficient. If you think that you're self-sufficient, if you think that you have self-achieved everything in your life, you have no reason to look up to a great God and say, thank you for giving me. Thank you for giving me abilities. Thank you for giving me gifts. Thank you for giving me provision because you've done it all yourself. A man who is self-sufficient has no reason to look up to heaven and ask God for anything because whatever he needs, he can go out and get himself. Indeed, it is precisely this which is the reason why Paul calls on men specifically to pray. It's not that he doesn't want women to pray. It's because he knows, like we know, that men are geared in pride to not pray. And that's why he has to look at the men and command them to pray. Men, you are to pray. You are to get on your knees before God in supplicant prayer, asking him for things, asking him for help, the desires of your heart, thanking him and praising him for what he has given to you perhaps our culture is moving in a direction against that perhaps our culture is moving away from that viewpoint of men but I don't think that our culture has moved so far that that is still not the picture of men that we put out continuously Paul attacks this assumed picture of manliness not only in telling them to pray but in telling them not to pray with quarreling or anger it's fine, we'll pray but I'm going to be the best at prayer right? right? Our competitive streak, we're going to quarrel in prayer. We're going to say mean and nasty things in prayer. I'm going to pray angry because I'm a man. Paul says, no, you don't do that either. You just you pray, brother. You just you pray. Quarreling must cease. Anger must be put away. Listen, if, if anything, it is so fitting for Christian men to pray. The Christian religion is built on the idea that you can't do it. There's nothing that you can achieve that God cares about. You cannot achieve your salvation. You cannot achieve anyone else's salvation. You can't change your own heart. You can't change your neighbor's heart. You can't remove cancer from a loved one. You you can't take on the powers and the principalities on your own. You cannot feat the sting of death and the grave on your own. You need help for all of that. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ has come to do. So you pray. You have a great God and a mediator who are willing to give you the desires of your heart so long as they follow the will of your God. Pray. No reason to be angry or quarrel about things, but pray. Christian men must do this because our whole lives are based on the fact that we are not sufficient for these things. Pray, men. And secondly, to women. Paul's command to women, you must beautify without gold. You must beautify without gold. If men tend toward a self-reliance that is undone through prayer, then women tend toward a self-depiction of beauty that is gained through outside adornment. It is gained through how you paint your face. It is gained through the clothes that you wear, the jewelry that you put on, the way you do your hair. This has caused pain and misery amongst women. A recent study of Psychology Today found that 50% of women were dissatisfied with how they looked. You might have thought that that number was higher or lower. I really don't even know what to make of it because the word dissatisfied can mean any of a number of different things. But compare that to men who answered only 41% being dissatisfied with how they look. And you get a sense, you get a sense that women are at least orders of magnitude more self-introspective when it comes to how they look than men are. This is just the nature of how men and women work it at least implies that women care much more about how they look. And this is deeply ingrained in us. It's it's not just part of the first century culture, and it's not just part of the 20th century culture. It's probably part of every culture everywhere. It's just built into how women interact in the world. Not too long ago, I saw a Christian magazine that ran a story about a Beth Moore book. This book was published around eight, nine years ago or something like that. And Beth Moore was on the cover of that magazine. Now, I didn't see that magazine. I saw Next Month's magazine, and I was flipping through it. I was waiting for something in the foyer of our church at the time, and I was flipping through it, and I saw a letter to the editor. And in that letter to the editor, um, Beth Moore had written a book about insecurity, among women which no doubt had something to do I've never read the book I, I'm not affirming it or, or denying anything content therein but she she no doubt writes about the insecurity of women and how they look in that book this is a major part of the book and the letter to the editor said this I find it curious something along these lines I find it curious that when she writes about a book and insecurities when you put her picture on the front of the magazine you've clearly touched her face up they they did edits on her face and how she looked. The the whole book is about not being insecure about how you look. And the magazine was either so terribly illogical in what they were doing or it's so ingrained that they saw, oh, well, we need to touch that up. That's the whole point of the book. I have no doubt that Beth Moore had nothing to do with her face being touched up, but at the same time, how ingrained must it be that you are writing about a book that says that women should be okay with who they are, making Beth Moore not okay with who she is? This is not something that our culture has just baked up. It seems to be, again, cross-cultural. Paul takes us on headfirst here. He desires that women not act like the other women around them. He says there are things that you must not do. You must not be haughty in dress. You must not put it out there in order to flatter. You shouldn't wear expensive jewelry, not fancy hair that is meant to impress, but rather dressed modestly. When Paul says modestly here, he no doubt has no implications about how much skin you're showing, but how much bling you bring with it. Okay? It's not modesty and making sure that everything is covered up, although that is important, and he does talk about that elsewhere. That's not what he's talking about here. He means modest in terms of you trying to impress people with what you're wearing. That ought not be the case. But also, lest you think that he wants you to invest in some strong fibered burlap sack for the winter months so that you can be a, some sort of frumpy potato mistress, <laughs> Paul says he wants you to wear respectable apparel, what those, or reasonable apparel, what, what that means is, is apparel that's well put together. He, he doesn't think that you should be lumpy and frumpy and, and, and not care at all. He, he says your, your level of care has to be appropriately barometered so that it matches the level of care you put into good works. You are to be put together. There's nothing wrong with being put together. But you can't so focus on that to the exclusion of other things, The real issue highlighted is at the middle of verse 9. It is self-control. Paul talks about this being a fruit of the Spirit. Indeed, it is a good work, as Paul highlights here. And so what Paul is saying is you should be so concerned with how you adorn yourself in good works that the same way that people dress themselves out in the world in order to impress, you ought to walk around and impress them with the way that you carry yourself in good works. I mean, for just a second, think about Proverbs 31. We don't have time to read it, but this wonderful depiction of of a godly and excellent woman. Think of what happens in that. If you've never read it, find Proverbs 31 at the end of my sermon and read it. And you will find a couple of very interesting things. That excellent woman, that excellent wife, that, that very few people find, her hands are described as being industrious. There are no other physical depictions of that woman at all. Instead, She's pictured as industrious, as kind, as prudent, as strong, as very capable in business, as giving, as wise, as dignified. Frankly, just making the people around her better. Paul says, ladies, if you want to adorn yourself with something, if you want to dress up when you go out, dress up with that. That is what you ought to do. This this accords with a, a desire for godliness in all things. If you want Men in the world to notice you, don't dress like that. If you want God to notice you, if you want God to think that you are beautiful, adorn yourself with good works. Third, Paul's command to the church. Women must learn without leading. Women must learn without leading. And there's no doubt that this is by far the most controversial part of what we're going to say today, and these verses have caused great rifts among Christians in the past several decades. Yet before we get to those things that stand so firmly against our culture, maybe we should look at something that stands so firmly in our culture and realize how radically progressive Paul is. Instead of just thinking him a retrograde knuckle-dragger, we should probably see how Paul is more forward-thinking for his day and age than almost anyone else was. He says very, very clearly in verse 11, let a woman learn. Now, we can read that as though it's just permission, but it's not just permission. It is a command. And it's not a command strictly for Timothy to allow it to happen. It is a command for Timothy to make it happen. Women are to learn. This was unheard of in the first century. Women didn't learn. Education wasn't for women. They were just not supposed to. It wasn't even really a reason. It was just, this is how the world worked. Women didn't learn. They didn't go to school. They didn't get education. But Paul says, no, no, no. In Christianity, in the church, women have to learn. Women must learn. Realize that he's skipping like three or four steps down the road. He's gone from women shouldn't learn to, there are times maybe it would be okay for women to learn, or it's probably good for most women to learn to saying, no, 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 no. All women should learn and learn well. Now, you are not second-class citizens who sit there simply learning, or simply listening to what the men folks say. You are to learn. You are to dedicate yourself to learning. This is a task that God has given to you. You should be stretched to learn theology as much as any man in this place. The Word of God no less than commands this of you. Theology is not men's business. Theology is your business. If you were just taken up to learn nice things on how to make, I don't know, better knitting and potting and crocheting, that's fine. Learn those things if that's your deal. But Paul is very clear. Your life should be taken up with also learning. And when he says, in quietness and in submission, I would put to you that that is not just quietness and submission before men. That is primarily quietness and submission before the word of God. That you were to learn about the traditions that have been passed down, the faith once and for all handed to the saints, that is what you were to learn. And you were to learn that and to stand under that tradition. You were not to speak out against it, you were not to quarrel with it, you are to accept it as it is given to us. Well that means that you are not simply to be under the submission of men. That means that you are under the submission of the men who bring the word rightly, because you're under submission to the word. And men, you ought to have no problem with this, because this is exactly what we have. You are in submission to me only so long as what I say is in accordance with the word of God. The second that I say something that is not in accordance with the word of God, you don't have to listen to me at all. This is not only a scriptural foundation for how we handle things, it is historically how especially Protestants have viewed everything. Remember in Acts chapter 4, John and Peter have healed a crippled man in the name of Jesus Christ, and they go before the Jewish leadership, and the Jewish leadership says, hey, that's great. There's a blind man or a lame man who's been healed. That's fantastic, but this whole talking about Jesus thing ain't going to happen anymore. And Peter and John look at them, and you can imagine just the, the perplexed looks on their faces as they say, whether it is right or not in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Which is a polite way of saying, do you think you're better than God? Like, we're going to listen to you guys. Now realize, they were clearly in authority over both Peter and John. They were in authority over them. They had the right to jail them. They had the right to beat them. They had the right to do those things. And they said, we are not going to submit ourselves to you and deny God. We will rather support God. We will rather be submissive to God. They go on to say, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have heard and what we have seen. Martin Luther did the exact same thing. When put on trial before the church, he said, I don't know, man, this is, this is the word of God. If you can point out to me where the word of God says that I'm wrong, then I'm all for it. I will recant. But simply because men tell me to, it's not going to happen. Women, you are under the exact same level of qualification for that. You are submitting to the word of God and to the work of the gospel. But then, of course, even if Paul is incredibly progressive in saying women ought to learn, he does then say in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So, a word or two before we begin. First, not everyone who comes to a different conclusion about these verses than what we are going to come to today and what Crossway has always historically stood on do so because they don't like Scripture. Okay. So there are plenty of people out there who simply deny Scripture. They come to this, they hear what Paul says, they say, that's yeah, probably a good translation, but listen, that is not something I want. And because it's not something I want, then I'm not going to listen to it. And we know better today and all the other reasons that they're going to give. And they will just kind of politely shove it into the back of their room closets and think that it's not there anymore. Okay. There are plenty of people with an insufficient view of Scripture who would deny what Paul says here. But not everyone who disagrees with us is in that camp. There are plenty of people who think that women can be given positions of authority and can teach before a church who think that based on the authority of Scripture. They handle these verses differently because of historical considerations, because of linguistic considerations that we don't have time nor I the the desire right now to go into. But nevertheless, they can have a high view of Scripture and still come out on the other side of this. So, my warning for that is that you are not the kind of people who assign motives to people when there are no motives to assign to them. Listen, too many people hear what other people think and they assign motives to them. Not only is that unloving and uncharitable, but it is just as much commanded against in Scripture as women being in positions of authority. It just is. You cannot be unloving and be uncharitable and think that you're upholding the Word of God. You're a fool. So be careful about that. Not everyone who denies these verses denies the inerrancy or the proficiency of Scripture. Second, I would like a word about the slippery slope argument. This isn't a logic class. We're not going to spend too much time on this. The slippery slope argument is fine as long as it is seen as a warning and it is not seen as a logical eventuality. The slippery slope argument goes like this. If we allow A to happen then B is probably going to happen if B happens and C is going to happen. But C is going to lead to D, E, and F, and then F is going to lead to G, and before you know it, we're, we're all the way down the hill. What fun is that? When it comes to this particular passage, the slippery slope argument works like this. If you allow women to teach and have authority... They're going to start denying, both the men and the women who have allowed that are going to start denying other clear teachings. Sexual morality will go out the window next. Then perhaps the nature of the atonement and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And then miracles and any supernatural thing appearing in Scripture. And soon you vacated Christianity of all that it so thoroughly has had in history and all you're left with is this sort of outside candy shell, which looks good but is vapid. And perhaps that kind of stuff will happen. And perhaps it does in certain quarters. But there are plenty of people around who don't slip on that slope. They are egalitarian. That means that they believe that women are equal both in value as we do, but also in role and function. And you know what they don't do? They don't then deny everything else in Scripture. They don't do it. It's fine to call that a warning, but to think that it's something that has to happen is not good practice. And one of the reasons why it's not good practice is, friends, you are always further down that slope than somebody else. There are plenty of people who walking in here today would have seen Meredith come up here reading scripture and praying and said, you guys have already given it up. You're, you're two steps away from denying the incarnation. Right? You're, you're, you're three steps away from denying the atonement and denying scripture altogether. And the reason why some of you chuckled is because you know that that could not be further from the truth in here. So don't think that that reasoning applies to other people, but it doesn't apply to you. So, let us get to the text. The text, as it stands in our translation, is good and sufficient to adequately imply everything that Paul wanted it to imply. Most of the problems that people have are not trying to rephrase what we have here. They think that it says something different. I think in my study both the historical considerations and the linguistic considerations that what the ESV has for us is good translation and therefore, the implications of the verse are very, very clear. If that translation is good, the implications are very clear. Women, while they are allowed to learn and while they can perform many, many roles within the church, including teaching and having authority over other women and children, are not allowed to have authority or teach men. It's simply that easy. The church has believed this for some 2,000 years, and there is no reason why now any evidence has come forward that would make us not think that that is the case. So women, although fully and totally and completely equal in value before God, are equipped for different functions and roles within the church and are not, and are not, to be put in positions of authority or teaching over men. This means that women teaching from a pulpit to a mixed congregation, even under the auspices of the elders, even under our authority, is wrong. And it goes contrary to Scripture. But a woman reading Scripture carries with it no sense of teaching and no authority other than the word of God that she carries into the pulpit with her. And therefore we allow Meredith to read Scripture and to pray for us. There's nothing wrong with those things. And Crossway does the best job we can of putting women in front of our congregation because we think that they're important, of putting women in positions where they can help the most because we think that that is important. But one thing we can never do is put a woman in a position of an elder to teach or to have authority over men because we are entrapped by the word of God. We have these general guidelines. It doesn't mean that we're going to do it perfectly. And it doesn't mean that there's not still gray areas that we're going to have to work out. They're there. And we have blind spots. Oh, man, we have blind spots. And so you're going to notice them over time. You're going to say, well, why do you do this, but you don't do that? Why do you allow this, but you don't allow that? Bring those to us. We we don't want to be hypocrites. We want to work these things out. And we will do so So we are to be gracious with many who think otherwise than us because there's always different levels. There's always different gradients that we're going to have on how we apply this to the modern church. So be gracious and be kind to people who think otherwise. Listen, friends, this is not a test of orthodoxy. I can't say that strongly enough. This is not a test of orthodoxy. This isn't denying the virgin conception of Christ or the sufficiency of the word of God or denying the Trinity. It is not that. To treat it like that is incredible theological malpractice. To, To put it as bluntly as possible, Paul cares much more about content than he does context. He cares about the content of what is preached, well, good, and above. Well, good, and above the context in which it is preached. So Beth Moore, the lady who I mentioned before, many of you know and have been helped by her ministry. This spring got in a whole heap of trouble because her church allowed her to speak on Mother's Day. And we wouldn't even say not speak, but we would say preach on Mother's Day before their congregation. They handled these verses differently than us. She did it under the authority of the elders. She got run through the coals for that. Not the best. Certainly wouldn't ever happen here. Beth Moore is a more capable preacher, frankly, than I am but it's not according to the word of God, and we would never let it happen here. But if I had to choose to listen to a Beth Moore sermon or a sermon from Joel Osteen or Stephen Furtick or the the bloke who's at First Baptist Dallas, Beth Moore every time and twice on Sunday. Content means more than context. He starts this letter, by the way, blasting the men for not teaching correctly and it's only into the second chapter and halfway through, almost the full way through it, that he ever gets to the fact that women shouldn't be doing this at all. Context always means less than the content of what is being spoken. The question then becomes why. If women should learn, if they can learn, and they do sometimes better at these things than men, and they do, why not let them teach? And Paul explains in verses 13 and 14. In verse 13, he says, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, what I don't think that means is that in the grand scheme of the created order, anything that's formed first matters more than that which is formed later or has authority over it. After all, I don't let my dog tell me what to do. Although some of you who own cats, frankly, do that. You let your cat dictate to you and it's wrong. But that's not what Paul's getting at. What he means is Adam was made first and I think the implication here is that Eve was made from him. It was out of his rib. Now remember, God could have made Eve any way he wanted to. He could have formed her from the dust, like he did Adam. He could have spoken her into existence simply by speaking and breathing. He could have simply thought, and she would have been. But instead, he pulled her from Adam. And biblically speaking, that gives her some sort of submission below Adam. Okay? That's Paul's understanding of the Genesis text. That because she was taken from Adam, she is submissive to him. And so women are to be submissive to men in marriage and in the church. And I want to be very clear with you as well. In marriage and in the church. This is not, and you can ask me the reasons why I think this later, this is not out in the world. My wife has no reason at all to be dismissive to anyone else in this church other than Pastor Richard in ecclesiastical ecclesiastical matters. That's it. In matters that come to our church, she doesn't have to listen to any one of you be very clear about that. And your wives have no right and no reason to submit to me other than in church matters where you would submit to me. I have no right to tell them how to live their lives. They don't need to do that. Paul is talking about the church here. And even in Adam and Eve's case, Eve was married to him. He gives a second reason. He says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Okay, so, Adam's sin was purposeful. He knew precisely what he was doing. The snake did not approach him. The snake did not lure him away. The snake did not deceive him. He sinned. She said, here, take this and eat. And he said, no, I'll take it and eat. Knowing very well what he was doing. By the way, the Bible holds Adam up as the real transgressor here in every single case. Eve was a transgressor, but her sin pales in comparison to Adam's. She was deceived, it says. She had been hoodwinked by Satan. Now, there very well could be that there are many women who are out there who are more capable and not gullible and who are not deceived as easily as some men. But Paul is saying very clearly that women are like, more likely to be deceived in this case than men. And I'm going to make another point to you. I don't think that Paul is saying that they cannot then be pastors to protect the church. Because the argument doesn't make any sense that way. Because Adam still took and Adam still ate. Sin is still present. He's saying that they can't be pastors to protect them, because in innocence, if you were deceived and you were led astray, you will pull down many people with you. And teachers are always held to a higher standard, and God does not want to see one in innocence be led astray and have the sin of many people brought back upon them. And so He says, because that is the case, women should not be pastors. Men might lead churches astray. In their own sin and their own knowledge. They might do horrible things to a church and to congregants within a church, but their judgment will be just, and God will not let them get away with it. Then we come to that difficult, difficult last birth, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Briefly, it does not mean that once you hit kid number four, you're good to go. Okay? So it doesn't have any implication for how many kids you have or the fact that you were saved by childbearing. An important verse in this sense comes from, again, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.15. In 1 Corinthians 3, he's talking about people who are building their ministries with various building materials, saying if you build with good things, if you build with stone and precious jewels, these things that will make it through fire, your work will be tested and you'll get through. But if you build with wood, hay, and stubble, he says this in 3.15, If anyone's work is burnt up, which if you're building with wood, hay, and stubble, one would assume that it would be, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. That means you will get through it and then be saved. That is precisely, given that Paul has already planted himself so firmly in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, given that he now talks about childbearing, that is almost certainly what he means. Not that you are saved by childbearing, but that you will be saved through it. It is the fire that you will come out the other side on. After all, what is the curse that lands on women after the fall? You will have pain in childbearing. You will bear children in pain. And now, I'm going to tread real carefully here. I have no idea what that pain is like. I am very thankful to God for that. Many of you women know exactly what that pain is like. But you also have lived in a time and an age where that pain and and the despair that comes around it is much lessened because of our medical technology. Can you imagine being a woman back in those days? The second that you found out that you were with child is about equivalent to your husband being called away to war because the chances of him returning and the chances of you surviving that pregnancy are probably close to the same. There was no epidurals, there were no pain blockers. There were no sutures. The pain and the damage that were done to a woman's body were almost irreparable. And certainly, not only were they put on death's doorstep every single time they were pregnant, but that child that was within them was put there as well. It's very easy to see why people would say that was a curse that God gave to women. But, praise be to God, Jesus has done away with the curse. You're you're no longer threatened with that curse. No, we're, we're watching that curse be rolled away, even today, as we have better medical technologies, as Jesus has been faithful, in a general sense, to people to roll back that curse. And there will be a day, praise God, when if you sustain yourselves through faith, and love, and holiness, that that curse will no longer be upon you. There will be no more pain in childbearing, but God will see you through the curse. In other words, what Paul is doing is he's latching on to the fact that childbirth and pain in childbirth was the curse placed on women and saying that curse, all of the curses are now gone because Christ has taken on the curse, death itself, and has shown himself victorious over it. Those who place their faith in him have no worries about any curses that might befall them. Women, continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control and Jesus Christ will deliver you from the curse. It is not cursed to be a woman and it is not a curse to not be able to lead. It is a curse to bear the pain of childbirth, to understand that death is always at your doorstep, to have it hounding you. And Jesus says now, no more. Death might come to you, but I will raise you from the grave. Your curse is no more. Listen, these, these verses all can have an unduly negative feel and they really shouldn't the fact that they do tells us how much the culture has shaped our understanding of male and female against what i think is the clear teaching of scripture so let us rejoice that god has made men and women so well that they can complement one another not only in equality but also in roles going forward that doesn't include just marriage it includes all of life and it most certainly includes the church and what's more let's praise god for jesus who has rolled back not just the curse on women, but on all men. That we can know an existence one day free from any of the curse of the fall, free from the pain and the penalty of the fall, not just women, but men as well, because we all deserve that punishment that Christ has taken from us. I was reminded a couple times at different places this week about the great Isaac Watts hymn, Joy to the World. It is, It's come up because of VBS and it's come up because of something else that I was reading and I was reminded of that third verse. He says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. This is our great hope, even today, that Christ's blessings are flowing out over the world and eliminating the curse. No doubt that curse is seen in childbirth and difficult labor, but it's also seen and the perversion of our culture. But we have a new culture now. We have a new creation now. So that we might not be holden to the culture any longer. So men, don't be conformed to the culture. Don't think of yourself as manly because you get to do things on your own and because you're self-sufficient. Men pray. They ask God for help because the difficulties that surround you are greater than you can ever imagine. Pray. Women, you are freed from the curse of thinking that you need to be beautiful to be admired. God cares about your good works. Feast on good works. Adorn yourself. Mount up the good works. And what's more, church, do not give in to the modern notions of gender where those notions fly in the face of God's revealed word. Do not fall under the weight of the culture. Don't be pressed down by it and don't succumb to it, but arise. Let's pray. Father, give us strength to stand against the culture where we need to and give us humility to be led by your word always. In all things, let us approach such issues with love and care, concern, but also conviction and faith. Father, we know that we are not sufficient to do what you have called us to do. So we ask for your guidance and help. Keep us faithful. Make us holy. In Jesus' most precious name. Amen.